together again My tears have stopped falling The long, lonely nights Are now at an end Hello and welcome to episode 919 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of 538, joined once again after a six-episode break, or six episodes when we were not together, by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. Any more episodes not together, and people would have started to wonder whether there was a Archie Punjabi, Juliana Margulies situation <laughs> going on. They're never in the same episode. Yeah. But no, that wasn't it. We were just globetrotting. Yep. So we're going to do an email show today, the first email show in a couple weeks. Anything you want to talk about before we do? <laughs> I, uh, no. I, I'm, you know, me with banter. It's always... It's, it's always no, and then... And it, it's yes. It's it banter. Do you remember when you were a kid and you'd like uh, you you'd go to camp or something and everybody would be sitting around telling jokes and you'd hear like nine thousand jokes in twenty minutes and you'd be dying and laughing and everything and then the next day you'd try to tell somebody the jokes and you could only remember like one of them. That is me and banter. Like I just can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't keep them cataloged. Yeah. Well, Ryan Webb was designated for assignment while you were away, so we didn't get to talk about that. I don't have anything else to say no. other than the drought continues. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the great all-star definition debate of our times? I don't know if we've talked about this. We, we don't tend to talk about the all-star game very much. No. Is this uh, is this happening on Twitter right now as we speak? Like something about like, uh, sure like, it ju- is. like whether you have to be a star or not to be an all-star? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, people will use the fact that star is in the name the way right. that some people will use the the fact that fame is in the Hall of Fame to mean something. And, and you know, the fact that it's all-star, I mean, that's not a good argument because people Why not, though? It is literally about what star means. Sure, so. but, sure, but we, people, we, I mean, it's a subjective, it's going to be subjective no matter what. So if, I'm not, this is not my position, but if somebody's belief is that an all-star game should be all-stars, then that seems like as good a, uh, as good a, a um, kind of playing field to argue over as as who's been the best over the course of eight weeks weighted against their career <laughs> averages and so on. I mean, like, there's no good, clear, easy way of, of doing this, right? So why not? Right. Well, the word star doesn't preclude the first half star definition or interpretation, right? I mean, it's who was the star of the first half of the season? That's what the people who think the, that those people should be all-stars think. They, they still think they're stars. They're not as nationally known as whoever, Giancarlo Stanton or someone who doesn't have a good first half but is well-known. So, you know, I think both people think they're selecting stars. They're just defining star differently. Yeah, exactly. So then it's not helpful to say it's the all-star game, so why don't we send stars? Oh, because come on. everyone thinks they're sending stars. No, come on. Nobody thinks Eduardo Nunez is a star. Is Eduardo, Eduardo <laughs> Nunez, did not I get the, the wrong... way, but... Did I get the right Nunez? Which, who's the Nunez in the all-star game this year? Yeah, Eduardo yeah. Nunez is, yeah. is an Good. all-star. All right. <laughs> I, it's fine. Look, Ben, remember a week and a half ago when you wanted to have a home run derby of first base coaches? <laughs> well... 
No, that was the one I didn't want to watch. Yeah, but you would watch a home run derby. I wanted every other one you suggested. Virtually anything else. And so you've you I think that from that you have demonstrated that you appreciate the appeal of uh, sort of charisma and characters more than necessarily the actual skill of those involved or anything else. You it, once yeah. you agree that you want to see Kevin Seitzer in a home run derby just to to see it, then you, you know, like it, at, at that point, you just yeah. have to allow that everybody's got their own way of uh, deciding who they want to watch play baseball in meaningless ways. If it mattered, if it really mattered, then we could have a real uh, you know ri- rigorous debate about this. But as it does not matter, it is simply taste. It is like you and me arguing about whether I should get a tomato on my hamburger. You have no standing. <laughs> Just yeah. let me no, choose it is, what I it want. It is taste. It is taste. And I'm saying they're both valid interpretations of what star means. I'm just saying that yeah. the word oh, okay. star in itself does oh. not settle the debate. All right. So I see what you're saying. So you're saying that, that the... Uh, that people cannot use the word star as a mallet against other people's definitions right. of star, right? Like Eduardo yes. Nunez has has arguably starred this season for the Twins, yeah. uh, it, at least uh, relative to all the other Twins, and it is uh, no shame on the grammar of the All-Star game to have him in it. Right. It's like when people debate most valuable player and they say well it's the most valuable player not the best player but to other people most valuable and best are the same thing so it doesn't you know it doesn't really settle the argument in my mind so wait so you've ju- you've brought up three examples and really the three kind of most debated honors for a player uh in the you know the all-star game the uh-huh. most valuable player and the Hall of Fame, in which the creators, the originators of these honors, decided to put you know colorful, evocative language in there, uh, perhaps unnecessarily. Yeah. Do you think that these are weaknesses in the award that they have these words in them that maybe add a certain amount of glitz to them, but also create uh, you know ambiguity about how literally we are to take them, or is this good for the for the awards that they uh, are better than? simply calling them best player, best players, and then best player, parentheses, long term. (laughs) Yeah, I I think they are features for the people who hand out these awards and honors. I think they they make me frustrated and less interested in the award. I would maybe be more interested if it were best and we actually knew what we were, we all agreed what we were talking about. But the fact that we don't means that we can have these debates and I'm usually not all that interested in the debates, and so, but most people are, and most people love talking about all-star snubs, and, you know, uh, we talked about Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera plenty of times on this podcast, and people talk about Jack Morris or, you know, whoever, and these debates go on and on and on, and you could end them pretty quickly if you just renamed them or had some set definition, but the Hall of Fame likes that people debate Hall of Fame candidates, and I'm sure that Major League Baseball likes that people debate all-star selections. So I think it's probably a, a smart thing. Yeah, I, 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 think I, I think I agree with that. The only thing is that I don't know that there would be any less debate if they were called best player, best player team, and best career uh, or whatever. Uh, I don't know that there'd be any less debate, and it might be... Uh, so for the Hall of Fame's purposes or for Major League Baseball's purposes, they might get just as much debate... Uh, and it might be less frustrating for everybody involved to have everybody sort of reading from the same text, you know, like but you, using the same, you know, basic 
paradigm for deciding these things because it is very frustrating to you know argue with somebody who's basically operating you know in an argument that has different physical properties than the one that yeah. you're arguing with right so if you if you call it best player then maybe you wouldn't get the arguments about team quality mattering as much in MVP debates you know you you can't be valuable because the team didn't make the playoffs if it were just best player maybe you wouldn't have as much of a, a leg to stand on with that sort of angle so yeah if you called it if you if you called it best player of the first half or something then that would be pretty unambiguous and uh, you couldn't really make the argument that I don't know, Stanton or, or Andrew McCutcheon or whoever should be there because it's for the stars. You couldn't argue that they are the best players of the first half. But the argument that they should be there because they're stars is totally reasonable, and I'm somewhat sympathetic to it. So I don't want to equate that necessarily with the uh, team quality MVP debate, which I'm less sympathetic toward. Is it your preference that the best players are there, that the most entertaining players are there, or that the best players from this season are there? I think they're all considerations, so uh -huh. I'm, I'm trying to come up with the weighting that I would assign to each thing. It it does matter to me. If you have one anomalous first half and you are one of the best players in baseball, but you're not one of the most nationally known, I still think you deserve a spot there, unless there's someone just as good as you are who uh, had a much longer and better track record. And if you are a former star who's really fallen on hard times, I mean, I don't know. The, the whole system, as, as Joe Sheehan wrote in his newsletter today, the whole system is set up to make strange and, and maybe wrong and inconsistent all-star selections. So it's hard to really obsess over any one snub or pick when, yeah. you know, the, the fan voting is obviously it's catered toward teams that are playing well or, you know, fan bases that actually care enough to vote. And so you end up with starting lineups full of players from a couple of teams, and that's just how it goes. And between that and the players just voting completely differently from the fans and from the managers, and, you know, you have three different parties selecting these teams, and they're all doing it in different ways. And it's just a really strange mishmash of criteria for All-Stars. So the whole thing is crazy, and so that's probably why I don't spend too much time on it that and the fact that of course we all get to see these players all the time so it's not as much of a a treat to see these players play each other in a game because we are seeing that all season long and we can watch them whenever we want so it's just uh i think inherently going to be a, a less special event than it once was but i think for me you definitely if if you want it to be a showcase for the sport and you want it to attract other fans or show off the, the best that the sport has to offer, then definitely I think you have to give some consideration to, uh, you know, players who've been there before and players who've made names for themselves and players who are fun to watch. So I do think that is a consideration. But would I want to say that, you know, someone like Adam Duvall can never make an all-star team because he hasn't been all-star quality before? No, I wouldn't want to say that. I think if you come out of nowhere and you have one crazy season and you're actually good and no one knows who you are, I think you still have a, a pretty decent case. I don't know that Adam Duvall was the best selection anyway. He's got a 290 on base percentage. But I'm just saying that someone like Adam Duvall could be on my all-star team. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I don't I don't even know how to answer 
my own question because I don't have... The, the only thing that is interesting about the All-Star Game, uh, the two things that I think are interesting about it, one is seeing starting pitchers pitching in relief. Great uh-huh. start, great starting pitchers pitching in relief. Always fun, never not fun. Which you don't even get to see as much as you like because instead we get to see relief relievers, pitching yes, relief. relievers <laughs> pitching in relief. Right. So I like that, and I like just the general, like, awesome people hanging out together aspect of it. Uh-huh. Like. There are the, every once in a while, little details will uh, will sneak into the broadcast uh, where you're like, "Oh, look at that! Awesome people hanging out together," and that's fun. Yeah. And so I guess uh, to to that end, yeah. to the latter end, I guess I'm not that interested in Adam Duvall unless Adam Duvall is very good at, at at being starstruck or something. So maybe I would rather. But then on the other hand, I don't know if I need to see McCutcheon and Stanton there every year either. Maybe. Well, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I think I'd rather. Would. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a certain point if you're if you're playing at something significantly less than your usual capacity, whether you're hurt or whatever. I don't think you should get a, an automatic ticket. I mean, there's probably a certain point at which a player wouldn't even want to go. Right? It's almost embarrassing to be on an all-star team and you know be batting 240 and just not being up to your usual skill level. It, I don't, you know, in a, in a way, it sort of cheapens the achievement i guess and that well you didn't even have to be good and you're an all-star so what does an all-star even mean and it's a little different if it's kind of a a farewell tour thing if it's like a you know tip of the cap at the end of a career thing and you have a diminished Derek jeter diminished cal ripkin i i don't really have a problem with that i mean whatever you you give them a nice moment on the national stage and everyone's happy and everyone remembers that more so than they remember the snub of the unknown reserve who had better stats that season but didn't get onto the team but i don't think you uh i'm not so far to the star side of the spectrum the uh the the long-lasting star side of the spectrum that i would just give an automatic pass to you know former mvps or people who had achieved a certain status i think you still have to play at a at a pretty high level to have a spot yeah yeah i don't yeah i've i've felt many different ways in this conversation I'm back. I'm back on Team Duvall because I think I'll I'll feel more emotions about seeing Adam Duvall uh, than tucking in one extra yeah. uh, famous player. Like That's Adam, the other thing because you know Adam time, Duvall like, will feel more right, emotions. Exactly. The the first time All Star is still a significant thing. So maybe I would err on the side of the first time All Star. I would feel fine snubbing a second time All Star who is not of sufficient star caliber. But the first time All Star is a pretty cool thing. Yeah, and it's I don't know. I think it's just a nice message to send that you don't have to have made the all-star team before to make the all-star team again that anyone can be an all-star you can have a breakout you can be great and you can be on the stage with the other great players and you know i mean when when we talk about uh gold glove voters just or you know gold glove winners just kind of getting an automatic gold glove for years and years because they won one before that frustrates us and, and it's a little bit different in that this is a showcase and maybe it doesn't matter if they're actually the best players, but still I think it's, it's nice to recognize achievement, even if it's by people who haven't achieved that much before. All right. We uh, talked about that longer than I planned to. So let's get to emails and uh, we got a few emails responses to our Mitch Trout hypothetical from a couple weeks ago, where we talked about whether uh, a team would sign Mike Trout's identical twin who has never played baseball. A few people responded with the Jose Canseco, Ozzy Canseco precedent. 
So Michael was one of those who said, The Mitch Trout hypothetical reminded me that this has actually happened with the identical twin of former Sonoma Stomper Jose Canseco. Jose was not Mike Trout, but he peaked at around a 10-win player. Ozzy was younger than Mitch Trout when he switched to the outfield, and he was still a sub-replacement player. So I guess the Ozzy precedent is a pretty good argument for why a team wouldn't want to sign Mitch Trout, because it's different in that Ozzy was drafted as a pitcher, so he had plenty of high-level baseball experience, unlike Mitch Trout, and he converted to the outfield, you know, after Jose proved that he was a good player, Ozzy converted at a younger age than uh, Mike Trout's current age, and still, he never made anything of himself as a player, so that's a, a pretty good guide, I guess, for Mitch Trout, so uh, obviously, Jose was... Not the equal of Mike Trout, even with chemical assistance, and so maybe that changes things a little. I don't know. Was was Ozzy Canseco a, a juicer? Can we assume that that was the case? Uh, I don't know if that's actually been revealed. He certainly had the same build. For legal purposes, I don't think you can. Right. Uh, but let's see. If, so for definitely for legal purposes, we are not assuming anything no. about Ozzy Canseco. No. However, what you know about humanity, uh, <laughs> can you assume? I mean, he is the I, he is the twin. But then you got nature and I would say, the twin. and they are. Cl- I think I believe they're still close. So he would be. He would have maybe continued to be an influence on his brother. I would say that I. I would. I would go so far as to say that the chances of Ozzy Canseco having done performance enhancing drugs, I would assign it one percent lower than whatever gets us in legal trouble. <laughs> yeah. So. so yeah, so Although there is a long precedent in fiction for evil twins and good twins. So that <laughs> might also apply to clean twins and dirty twins. A lot of times though the trait of an evil person though is is actually very similar to the trait of a good person. It, like it's they're 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 flip sides of the same uh, the same traits. And so it really it does come down to your to your choices. And so uh, it might be that they're very similar people with similar drives and ambition. And then, yeah, it would just come down to their choice, and you would really have no way of knowing. I mean, the the mystery of choices and free will is hard to is hard to get into at this stage in an email yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but uh, it's instructive, I think. The fact that Ozzy turned out to be as good as Ozzy Canseco is definitely a data point that you would want to consider in your Mitch Trout signing decision. All right. Aaron says, am I crazy to think one factor in the Cubs' insistence in holding on to Kyle Schwarber is a belief that the National League could add a DH following the completion of the new CBA later this year? Oh my gosh, that's not going to happen this year, is it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you're not you're not crazy to, to think about it, but uh, I don't think there's any possibility. I think if, if that were going to happen, we would have heard far more about it by this point and everything Rob Manfred has said indicates that he is in favor of status quo and it just doesn't seem to be a a big point of contention currently well it's always a big point of contention but doesn't seem to be very high on the negotiating agenda from what we can tell so wouldn't expect it to happen that quickly and there are plenty of other reasons why the Cubs would want to hold on to Kyle Schwarber. So uh seems like those are probably sufficient. You know what's crazy is that Ozzy Canseco is actually two inches shorter than Jose. They're identical twins, two inches difference. If you can get that much variance huh. on height, 
then you would think that for things that are much more precise and skill-based and experience-based, you'd have extremely wide uh, error bars on those. Yeah, definitely. All right. How, how do you gain two, how do you get two inches taller? Did they just not feed Ozzy <laughs> a nutritious breakfast? Is it possible that <laughs> maybe maybe he had a thyroid so, some some uh, some environment started taking <laughs> at, at age eight some sort of um env- <laughs> they started taking growth hormone earlier than we know yeah know. it could be that there was an environmental factor that suppressed uh ozzy's thyroid production yeah could be it could be that uh maybe ozzy was no i guess you've been in a small car with jose can jose is gonna, yeah jose is gonna not say that ozzy using. is i was gonna say that maybe ozzy is more honest but having seen jose up close I don't think that's an issue here. No, I would. I'm surprised Jose's only six four. Yeah, he is a he is a monster of a man. Yeah, not a monster physically speaking. For legal purposes, I just want to make it clear that I mean <laughs> size wise, yeah, he is, right, he is sure. as large as a six foot four monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Brett says Jeff Merrick of Sportsnet has discussed his idea for improving the NHL trade deadline a couple of times on Hockey Central at noon and Merrick versus Wyshynski podcasts. He wishes the NHL would set it up for two days like they do the draft. He wants a stadium with every team having a table on a main floor with phones and mandating someone sit there. He thinks it would make for great TV viewing among the diehards and would lead to more trades. His basis is just being in proximity creates trades, thinking of the draft and GM meetings. Would you like to see two days of the MLG, MLB GMs put together for the trade deadline in such a manner? Would it help the trade deadline be a more enjoyable fan experience? And the other thing, uh, I, he's probably mentioned this, but the other reason that it, it could plausibly lead to more trades is that if you were a GM and you just had to sit there for 48 hours while a camera basically <laughs> uh, captures you not doing anything, like there would be yeah. an intense pressure for you to at least do busy work, to at least pick up the phone. <laughs> Like I think there'd be a lot of fake conversations that were prearranged uh-huh. between between GMs. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, can you bail me out? I don't have scripted anything. content. Yeah, exactly. It'd be it, well. Uh, I'm gonna. Yeah, I don't know if you could actually make the GMs sit there. I think you might have to have representatives like you do at the draft, where you just have some some team figure sit there and relay the the instructions from someone who actually matters. I um I don't know that it's it would be as entertaining. Uh, well, so this is the thing, you know, like reality shows are obviously not really reality. They're heavily edited. They're heavily produced. Uh, they're manipulated. And if you're, if you sort of, uh, if you can't get past that, they're not, they're not that entertaining. And I am a person who cannot get past that. I, I don't find them compelling at all. If there, eh, I guess there are some sort of competition-based shows. Like I liked Project Runway. Uh, that I have enjoyed, but generally I, I'm I'm just too aware of the editing ticks that give away all the all the uh, the stuff that has been left out or or um, shot oddly to change what you think about things. And so so to me this sounds horrible because I would feel like it was edited, it was uh, produced, it was false, and yet I know that the like The Bachelor is an extremely popular show that. Uh, lots of people that I know uh, love, and and so is professional wrestling, for that matter. Um, and so, yeah. uh, including yours truly, yes, including everybody who I follow, unfortunately, uh, on Twitter. Uh, so while it doesn't sound entertaining to me, <laughs> I um, I do see why it would be appealing to most people, and maybe I would too. It, it seems like it. The last thing you want 
as a GM is for your players to know how easily traded they are, or like the ones that you keep. You don't want them thinking that they were ever considered to be traded, that they were as disposable as they actually are. Um, you want them to feel like they're part of a team. That's a huge part of getting through a long season is having everybody feel like they're part of something special, a cohesive unit. And it seems to me like it would be a, a real challenge to have any extra, that, that GMs would really be disincentivized from having sort of free, wide-ranging, freewheeling conversations that would put more names into um, into public consumption as trade targets or trade uh, trade offers. Yeah, right. I mean, this would be this would be fun if we could actually hear all of the conversations going on. I think we would all enjoy that. But if we could hear them all, I mean, first of all, there's just no way that you could compel anyone with a team to have those conversations out in the open, even if you put a camera on them, they would just, I I don't think they would say anything real. If there were actual trade talks, I think they'd be going on off camera somewhere because you couldn't put the entire front office on TV. So I don't think that would ever work. And if, if we can't hear every word and we're just watching them sit there and talk on the phone or maybe talk to each other, that that's not all that interesting either. Uh, so I don't think it works that well. I don't think it works unless we get full transparency, and I don't see how that happens. Yeah, it's not an idea I like at all. Um, however, I uh, want to ask you about a uh, a little bit different twist on this. If there were documentary filmmakers who were given complete access to all this stuff, but it couldn't be released for X years, what? how big a number could X be? for you to still be interested in watching the end product. And let's say not just one time, because I think even if it were 19, you know, like for one year we would all be interested in it, but let's say you wanted to make this a sustainable model where it is released every 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 year's trade deadline uh, is documented and released in X years. How many, how big could X be that you would watch it every year, that it would be destination TV for you? <laughs> oh man, I think I might go up to like... Uh... 20 yeah at least i do too i think i would watch it no matter what i mean i would want to i'd want to watch it just to see kind of the alternate history of what could have happened if it made if a move had been made i'd want to watch it to get insights into executives who are maybe still in the game which of course could be decades and decades so i think it would be very i mean it wouldn't be interesting if you were say you know 15 years old maybe and and you'd never heard of all these players and you weren't alive when all of it was happening but if you were an adult who was watching baseball at the time and was familiar with all of these people then i think it would be almost evergreen yeah that's exactly right i think x is always growing because x is uh your age minus say eight basically any season that you followed yeah right Okay, uh, play index? Sure. Um, so I, um, I'm i going to steal my play index from an article that I wrote with Ryan Watt and Meg Rowley um, over the 4th of July weekend. Ryan and I did a all-star managing competition against each other where we imagined a world where the all-star game not only mattered, but mattered more than everything, basically. That like you ha- you just had to win. Do whatever you need to do to win. You have to follow baseball rules general baseball rules, and you have to have one player from every major league team uh, represented, but every other rule, custom, tradition is thrown out, and you can manage however you want, all right? And so in the process of doing this and inspired 
by a, um, a sort of a suggestion that Zachary Levine gave me. Um, I looked at whether knuckleballers are all-star killers. And the kind of basis of this hypothesis is that knuckleball is, you know, sort of random. You don't, like, it's not necessarily like a ton of skill from pitch to pitch or a ton of correlation between how good you throw it and the result. There's like a lot of randomness from the pitcher's end and then there's probably a lot of randomness from the hitter's end and then there's not a lot you can do as a hitter. You either, you know, get one that floats or you get one that doesn't float or whatever and you either the guy's wild or he's not wild and so it seemed like while a stronger hitter who connected with a knuckleball would 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 still hit the ball a lot further and a faster hitter who put it on the ground would you know reach base more often and and maybe a more patient hitter would be more patient and there'd be all these ways that skill would would matter it seemed like skill would matter less from a hitter's perspective than uh against any other pitcher and plus the fact that these are just not what you're selecting you're not selected from high school upward or from junior high upward for your ability to hit the knuckleball you're selected for your ability to hit the fastball the slider the changeup, the curveball the knuckleball is an afterthought because right? you only face maybe one a year and so um so we basically what we were looking at is whether Stephen wright is you know who besides being a very good pitcher whether he's actually like the best pitcher against all-stars uh on account of all-stars don't have uh, much of an advantage over him everybody's basically the same uh against him so to um to measure this i don't have enough stephen wright uh in history to uh to draw from so i looked at tim wakefield uh who's the closest thing we've had to stephen wright in a while i looked at his best five-year run, which was from 2001 to 2005, uh, when he threw, you know, more than a thousand innings, he had an ERA plus of like, you know, 115 or something like that. He was a good pitcher, Stephen Wright-esque, throwing a knuckleball almost all the time. And I used the play index to get the 25 best hitters in the American League during those five years. And with a minimum of 1,500 plate appearances, the 25 worst hitters uh, in the American League those five years. And so there's about 100. So it's basically the top quartile and the bottom quartile of all hitters. And the good hitters overall had a 373 on base percentage and a 515 slugging percentage. So that's pretty much what you know to be a very good hitter. It's a 900 OPS. The very bad hitters had, remember this is the offensive era, had a 324 on base percentage, a 395 slug. So a 720, you know, basically like a 720 OPS. So those are very bad hitters. And then I looked at how they had done um, against Tim Wakefield, those two cohorts. And sure enough, the gap shrinks considerably. Uh, The good hitters uh, on base edge goes from 50 points down to 30. And the slugging edge goes from 120 points down to uh, 45. Uh, So it knuckleballs are in fact this great well at least for this five-year period against this one pitcher were this great flattening effect where everybody kind of became the same like the difference uh between them was was greater than halved and this has if this were true if this held up this would have potential for you know potentially what potentially would have potential this would have potential for real strategic deployment if you had a guy like stephen wright who is already good, or maybe you have a guy who's worse than Stephen Wright, who's a you know number four starter in the regular season, puts up a three point eight ERA, but you know he's also going to put up something like a you know three point eight ERA in the postseason against better hitters. 
whereas all your aces with their 3.2 ERAs are also going to have 3.8 ERAs in the postseason, they, there might be a real benefit to having that guy on your team, to basically paying more for him, knowing that in the highest, uh, against the toughest competition, uh, in situations where you have the toughest competition, you can essentially neutralize that competition. It's interesting to think about. Yeah, that's very cool. That's another underrated thing about knuckleballers. I know you you mentioned that you're not that big a fan of the knuckleballer in general when we talked about right recently, and it it's partially because they're not always that fun to watch unless it's a, a really crazy pitch that everyone gifts and we have a physicist on to talk about. But another nice thing about knuckleballers is that you get all of these research questions and studies surrounding knuckleballers like is there this knuckleball effect against great players? Is there like a knuckleball hangover effect? There's been lots of research done about that, whether you're screwed up after facing a knuckleballer just because it's it's so different from the normal routine. So it's nice to just have something completely different thrown in there uh, so that we can actually come up with and answer these hypotheticals. Yep. I quoted you. I, I quoted you in my piece. You did the knuckleball effect piece uh, a few years ago and uh, found yeah. it found it to be real and uh, not for for your purposes for maybe for general purposes it wasn't enough to make a decisions based on but for my purposes for this one game I totally used that and had Stephen Wright start the game knowing that almost everybody he faces the first time through the order uh, would bat a second time because starters tend to bat a second time and I I posited that in fact going from Stephen Wright to Chris Sale uh, would be a significant enough effect to make a personnel choice based on it so I did yeah, and uh, we didn't, in our little all-star debate at the beginning of this episode, we didn't even talk about the wrinkle of the this time and, and every time it counts in the World Series home field advantage. Does the fact that the game has World Series implications and oh. that there is some sort of actual stake here sway your uh, team selection philosophy at all? It does not. Uh, if I were a man, if I actually were the manager, if I actually were the manager, I would only get to choose like two people. So uh, I'm the, that would, I would still be the wrong person to ask. But if I actually were the manager, I probably would err on the side of winning for that reason. But it's like, you know, 96% of the game is played not to actually maximize your chances of winning. Uh, so it's not really the the top priority on the, in this either. So no. Right. Okay. All right, so use the coupon code BP when you sign up for the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. So uh, this is just a, a quick one that I know you already agree with, so it's not even really a question, but it's a comment from a listener named Max who says, Can we please fix the phrase unintentional, intentional walk? The thing this is used to refer to is most definitely an intentional, unintentional walk. Not vice versa. It's a classic moronic lazy usage of language resembling saying a double negative from the tongue of Phil Simms or Tim McCarver, except somehow it's permeated all of baseball. An unintentional intentional walk is literally impossible, or if you're willing to stretch your definition of intentional walk, would be possibly the weirdest thing ever seen in a baseball game. Next year, if you can just put up four to signal intentional walk, perhaps this will be a thing, and actually I'll venture that it may happen which makes it all the more important that we correctly differentiate between these two events. Do you like semi-intentional walk? Yeah, I, I guess it's okay. We have a lot of ways to describe this, whether it's 
pitching around someone, pitching carefully to someone. I don't know how many terms we need for this one thing, but semi-intentional, that's okay. Yeah, I think you're right. Pitching around is perfect, and it captures it exactly. And and having semi-intentional walk or intentional, unintentional walk or unintentional, intentional walk, it all, giving a noun to it, implies almost that you're counting it and that it's a stat now and that you need to like you need to have it counted and we don't it's not something we count so we don't i don't think we need a noun for this i think the verb is fine the verb is much stronger yeah okay last one from a patreon supporter named peter who says in the world of sports today it is impossible not to talk about tanking or rebuilding bottoming out etc But there is one aspect that I don't recall hearing mentioned much, and in some ways it pertains to this year's Cubs team. People tend to either chastise teams for rigging the system through tanking, or shrug and admit that it's a good strategy if you want to be good and not end up like the team I support, the poor doomed by Mike Illich to be middling Tigers. My question is this, should we take more time to appreciate the process for the great teams it brings us? As a fan of baseball, as a sport, I appreciate watching the greatness of a team like the Cubs, So as Bill Simmons likes to talk about, in history you have teams like the Lakers ending up with Magic Johnson, birthing the Showtime Lakers, or you have the Spurs scoring Tim Duncan because of a down year, giving us almost two decades of great Spurs teams. Of course, baseball isn't basketball, and tanking, sorry, rebuilding, doesn't work the same way or with nearly the same speed. But perhaps we should step back and say thanks to a strategy that gives us great collections of talent like the Cubs. I find that... I um, enjoy it less when a team has tanked, though. And this is fairly recent. I don't know if I felt this way 10 years ago, and I don't know if the average fan feels this way or should feel this way, but I personally do sort of feel this way. I get less satisfaction knowing that they f- that, that there was something sort of inorganic about how the great team was put together. Uh, and so I think uh-huh. that I think you will have great teams regardless. I mean, for instance, with the Spurs example, the Spurs didn't tank. The Spurs had one down year and made the most of it, but they didn't go through an ugly process that their fans had to, you know, hold their nose for. And it was certainly not automatic. You know, they they also got really lucky. They won that lottery, and they happened to get, um, you know, they won that lottery in a year that the lotter that the first pick was somebody who became a transcendental superstar and maybe partly because he was, I mean, largely maybe because he was uh, in their organization. And so I don't think that you can really say that the Spurs are an example of this. But And so my point, I guess, is that teams like the Spurs happen anyway. And uh, I would rather root for a team like the Spurs or to watch and observe a great team, a, a, dynast- a dynastic team or uh, an all-time great team uh, that just that felt like it was put together in a little bit of a less um, cynical way. So, if I thought that there was some like eternal shortage of of great teams, then maybe I would reconsider it. But I think great teams are they happen. They're going to happen, and we always find things to cheer for anyway. Yeah, I think I agree. If 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 the tanking were enabling us to see something that we wouldn't see otherwise then I would be in favor of it, maybe. If it were the only way to build a real juggernaut team, the likes of which we rarely see in baseball, then maybe it would be worth it once in a while, or at least you could highlight the positive aspects of it. But as it is, 
I mean, the Cubs uh, have essentially the same record as the Texas Rangers right now. I, I think the Cubs are a better team, but, you know, the separation between the Cubs and the Rangers or the Cubs and the Giants or, you know, the Cubs and the next best teams in baseball is not so significant. It, it appeared that it might be for a, a little while, but it probably isn't so significant that we're going to look back and say that the Cubs are the kind of team you couldn't have built without doing what the Cubs did. So not sure it really rises to that level. I, I guess the, the things that the Cubs did, it's always more impressive if you can do it while also winning, and a team like the Giants is doing that now, and a team like the Rangers is sort of doing that. I mean, they had a, a little down period, but nothing like the extended slump of the Cubs or the Astros. So I guess you could say that maybe it's a more foolproof way to ensure that you get to be good again in a reasonable time frame. Like if you uh, if you do get stuck in the sort of Tigers situation, then maybe that's bad for baseball. Maybe that's bad for fans of that team. But the Tigers are uh, kind of a good example of why there's some merits to the other approach because Tigers were a really good team for a long time. And even now in the, the twilight of their time as a contender, I mean, they're they're still watchable. They're still in it. They're still in the wildcard race. So you would probably rather have the Tigers kind of limping along as they are now than you would say, have them be a 50-win team for three years in order to be slightly better at the end of it. So I think you're right. The Rangers, uh, and I know you know this, but just to sort of clarify, the, the Rangers really had, they had one year in which they were decimated by injuries. They otherwise, 87, yes. 90, 96, 93, 91, down year, 88. So they've won 87 or more uh, in six of seven years before this year. They're going to do it again this year. They won uh, 90 or 88 or more in in five of six and it's going to be six of seven. So, uh, they, I think it's, they were just as, uh, every bit as, as winning as the giants were in that time, I think. Yeah. Right. So it's possible to do that and just rebuild on the fly. And that's the best of all possible approaches. So, Mm -hmm. all right, that is it for today. Thank you to Russell Carlton for trying to salvage yesterday's outro. You did a pretty passable impression of me when I say that you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support are Daniel Wilson, Tim Ellithorpe, Max Schleicher, Byron Eknoyan, and Kevin Seip. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Thank you to those of you who've left us reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. If you've finished the book and liked it and haven't done so yet, we would appreciate it. And if you haven't read the book yet, you can find out more about it at our website, theonlyruleisithastowork.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can send us comments and questions for the next email show at podcast at baseballperspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back with another episode tomorrow. Let's Let's fade forever Let's fade